Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. With so many performing arts venues in this city, there's always something to see or do, but have you ever wondered what goes into making a great stage play? How does the story come alive and who makes sure all of those details are correct? Well, to dive into those questions and more, today I'm joined by Dr. Khalid Long. Dr. Long is an assistant professor of theater and the coordinator of theater studies at Columbia College Chicago. He earned his Bachelor of Arts in Theater Arts from Cheney University of Pennsylvania, his Master's of Arts in Theater from Miami University of Ohio, and his PhD in Theater and Performance Studies from the University of Maryland College Park. His research interests include African-American, Black diasporic theater, performance, and literature through the lens of critical race theory, Black feminist, womanist thought, queer studies, and performance studies. His work pays close attention to the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality within marginalized and oppressed communities. In addition, Dr. Long is also a freelance dramaturg with a focus in production dramaturgy, new play development, and audience engagement. Dr. Long has worked at several major theaters, including Mosaic Theater in Washington, D.C., Rep Stage in Howard County, Maryland, Center Stage in Baltimore, Maryland, and the Great Plains Theater Conference in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome, Dr. Clyde Long. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am so excited. Okay, so listeners, you, I will, I'll let you in on a secret. Um, Clint and I met each other while we were both in graduate studies at the University of Maryland, not in the same departments or programs, but still, you know, in that journey of graduate studies. <laughs> and um, when I first learned that you were a dramaturg, you know, I was just so, my mind was blown because I was like, I don't even know what this means. What is this? This sounds amazing. Right, and so right. I knew I had to have you on the show. And I'm sure that for many listeners as well, um, your minds will also be blown as, as Khalid shares with us, you know, a little bit about his work. Um, so I just want to dive into that. So first, can you just tell us what does it mean to be a dramaturg? What, what is that? So I, I want to start off by saying that dramaturgy or being a dramaturg, it is a broad, like it is, there is no concrete definition, right? Okay. Um, Rather than saying there's a concrete definition, I can explain it by offering some of the areas that I practice, some of the things that I do as a dramaturg. But if I had to give you one sentence, a dramaturg is a research specialist for theater, for productions, for plays. But there are various areas in which one can practice, right? So for instance, I am a production dramaturg. I specialize in new play development, and I also specialize in audience engagement. Um, and so for instance, when I, I am hired to do, uh, you know, I get a phone call and someone says, hey, we want to hire you to be the tr production dramaturg for this new play or this classic play, but for this play that's in our season. I say, okay, great. Um, and then I sign a contract and I move forward. 
What that typically involves is that I will work with the director and the creative team and sometimes the playwright if they are a part of the process. And that is in particular when it's a new play. So it's like new play development. And we're working to ensure that the play is historically and culturally accurate. Um, I also consider myself as a dramaturg, I consider myself the first audience member, right? And so all of my work is to ensure that the audience is getting a most fulfilling production, a most fulfilling show. Sometimes I conduct research around a specific topic or a time period, um, a cultural moment, a figure, um, and I bring all that research with me throughout the production process. Sometimes I am helping to develop um, workshops and panel discussions and pre-show lectures, post-show discussions, lobby displays. I'm writing, you know, various short articles for the playbill or their production guide or the program uh, booklet. Um, sometimes I'm assisting with um, media, right? So in terms of like what we say, you know, having discussions with folks in the community. I mean, it's just, it's a range of things that a dramaturg can do. Um, and I am also somebody who specializes in you know, dramatic structure, right? And so particularly when it comes to working with the playwright, you know, I'm helping to think about plot and character development, um, the storyline, right? And again, cultural accuracy and historical accuracy, and even sort of questioning the notion of culture and historical accuracy with regards to certain productions, right? What does that even mean if this play is not Shik realism or looking at a specific moment in time that actually happened, right? So there's a broad array, there's a broad range of areas that one can approach when it comes to dramaturgy. For instance, just to give you one more example, there are folks, and this is not my area, but there are folks who specialize in adaptation. There are folks who specialize in translation, right? Uh, there is, there's a myriad of uh, pathways, right, to the professional career of dramaturgy, yeah. I just think this is so fascinating because, and I love how you describe yourself as the first audience member, right? Yeah. Because I'm thinking of, you know, when I go to a play and I sit down and I'm completely just taken away, right? Like I am transported into whatever time or storyline that's happening. And a lot of that is because of the work of a dramaturg to make sure yeah. that, as you mentioned, thinking about historical accuracy or cultural accuracy. So making sure that, you know, maybe the way something is presented or even the way something looks or the feel, the sound, the actual words that people are using is accurate. So we feel like we're really there. Yeah. Um, but then also that other part of, you mentioned working with playwrights on that dramatic structure. So again, yeah. going on this journey that, you know, builds up to something that takes me on that emotional <laughs> journey, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, it's just so cool to me that like you're the person who brings that expertise um, to yeah. the production and really makes it what it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a collaborative effort, obviously. Um, often, and it's interesting because I was talking to somebody recently, I can't remember like, you know, when or who or what was involved in this discussion. But, I, but the point is that it, what stayed with me was someone says, oh, oh, I do know what it was. It was a faculty meeting. And someone says, well, dramaturgs don't usually come on until much later anyway. And I said, well, actually that's incorrect, that is false. 
for instance, when I'm hired for a new show, sometimes six to eight months out or earlier, I, for instance, I have a show that I'm doing in the fall, September through October, and I was actually hired a year ago for this production. Wow. The director and I have already begun to have conversations. Partly it was about the playwrights, um, their, their, their goals for this play. Um, this is a play that has not been produced a lot. The playwright is still living. They're a very active playwright. And so one of the reasons I was born early is so that I can begin to initiate conversations with the playwright, who's not going to be a part of the production process, but because I was able to contact the playwright, pull some questions and get some context, I was able to bring that back to the director. And this is informing the director's perspective, their purview, their vision and concept, right? So sometimes dramaturgs are brought in much early, you know, much earlier than, you know, the typical six to eight months or the typical, you know, you start two weeks before the rehearsal process, but it all varies, right? And that's, and that's what, so it's not concrete. There's nothing concrete about when and how you start. I'll give you another example. I worked with, um, uh, I recently did a show at Timeline Theater. It was for the world premiere of Tyler Abercrombie's Relentless. And it's a fantastic play. It takes place in 1919, West Philadelphia. And it's about two sisters, Annell and Janet, who discovered their mother's journals upon her passing. They've come back to Philadelphia. They live in Boston. They've come back to Philadelphia to clean her home, sell the house, you know, and they discover her journals. And they discover that their mother had a life that was really complex before they were born, right? Before she became their mother. Um, and so... This playwright and I were working together since I think 2018, 2018, early 2019, something like that. Various workshops and discussions. Then the pandemic happened and it shut us down. Okay, but we continued to work. We continued to workshop. We were doing Zoom rehearsals and readings and discussions. Um, we did some audience engagement workshops and activities just to sort of get some preliminary responses to the work, right? And then here we are. 2022 and the production finally goes to the theater and now it's actually being transferred over to the Goodman Theater, which is a major theater, perhaps one of the most major theaters in the country, but a major theater in Chicago. A few months later, the Goodman Theater says, bring the show over here. We're going to continue the run, right? But I, I like to say that part of the, uh, the reason that the show was so successful is because of the work, the efforts put behind the entire creative team with the playwright obviously at the helm and the director Ronald J. Parson at the helm of this project, right? Working it for two years to just make it better and better. So again, time, is, it, 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 it just depends on the project, yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that it's so collaborative, um, yeah. that you're able to work kind of in concert with you know, the director with the playwright, um, if they're still living and really get that synergy and come up with, or in the end have a production um, that really tells the story that the playwright, you know, has envisioned and that the director also envisioned as well. Um, which leads me to ask, what 
happens in the instances where the playwright perhaps is no longer living? Mm -hmm. How then do you kind of, I guess, bring in the playwright's voice and maybe even fill in some blanks that a director might have or that might be important to the piece? And that's where the research comes in. It's interesting because a lot of people think that dramaturgs are only, you know, we are only researchers, right? We only are to go and create these, you know, enormous gigantic research packets and so forth, which I actually don't do anymore. I don't do, I do research packets, I do a dramaturgy packet, but I don't create those, you know, 800 page packets. I, I just don't believe in them. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for me to just bombard you with a bunch of stuff at the very beginning of the process. Rather, as we move along throughout the rehearsal process, um, if there are things that you need answers to, questions you have and so forth, I will do work around that and deliver it, you know, throughout the process or whatever. But um, to get to, to answer your, the question you just posed, um, I do a research packet, right? And so part of it is what I'm doing in that moment is presenting the director, the creative team and the performers with, you know, um, some of the social, cultural, historical context behind the play, which may include interviews or just the, the, the playwright's words. Um, and that requires me to then do a lot of research. So I'm in the, I'm one of those, I'm an old school researcher. I go to the library, I pull the books, I do. Um, <laughs> I find joy in that, right? Which is part of what feeds my work as a, you know, professor, scholar, dramaturg, all those things, right? And it feeds my work in that way. I go to the library, I can, can pull books, and of course, you know, you go to the bibliography and you're looking at other sources and other sources. And at some point I go, okay, you got, you know, 27 books in front of you in, you know, a day's time in the library, narrow down, figure out what works, you're Xeroxing, you're scanning, you're pulling things off the internet. And so I'm pulling all of those resources together to sort of present the world of the play, the world of the playwright to the director that will hopefully answer questions they may have at the beginning. And, and then also to provide them with more than what they were asking for in hopes of inspiring their vision and their concept for what it is they're aiming to, you know, get out of this particular production or, in, you know, any production that they are staging. Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm just thinking about, well, as someone who also likes to research and, you know, physically get in the stacks if possible, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that's really exciting because I think in the research is where you get some of those insights that yeah. maybe you didn't know and you find some of those hidden gems about maybe a playwright yes. and what they yes. were going through at a certain period that led them to write something in a certain way yes. um, and that you can then present that to the director and perhaps spark some sort of interest in them that maybe changes yes. you know the course of how they direct or has them add in something that maybe they hadn't thought about before. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, so I'm currently in Baltimore. Well, I'm in Howard County. I'm, what, what is this? Howard County, Howard County, Maryland, Columbia, Maryland, you know, in that area right outside of Baltimore. And I'm doing a show right now, The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams at Rep Stage. Um, and I actually like, I like, and the reason I took this show is because I like classics. I do. Um, part of it is because I get to go and do a lot of research um, and sort of my own investment in learning and continue to learn. A lot of the things that I've learned about theater performance is through my work as a dramaturg. Mm -hmm. um, and what I discovered in reading and researching was that, you know, this play is not realism, but it's often staged through the prism or the framework, right? Or the style of realism. And, and what the playwright has done in the text and also in a lot of their commentary about this play is to say, this play is a dream play, it's a memory play. 
Um, and, and one of the questions that, that we are sort of working around in our rehearsal process is, is anything in this play real? Did it actually happen through the lens of Tennessee Williams? As we know that the play is semi-autobiographical, right? Um, and then, so one of the questions I posed to the director and the performers in rehearsal the other day was, well, does that actually matter if it actually happened or not? Is it our job to sort of conjecture, to sort of you know, theorize about why Tennessee is putting this in the play? None of this may have happened, but he's attempting to give us maybe a world where he hoped these things would have happened this way as opposed to actually happening, right? So just questions like that, thoughts like that really sort of gets us to think about the stakes of the show. It gets us to think about, you know, how we, how, what our production is aiming to do. And that's the thing about dramaturgy, right? Like to sort of, you know, uh, um, to put it succinctly, right? One of the goals of the dramaturg is to say, this is your show, director, performers, creative team, artistic director. What do you want to do with this show? And here are all the things. Here's, here's a lot of information. Here's some research. Here's some context so that you then can make decisions about what you're going to do with this particular show. Because no shows are the same. And directors, you know, they direct these productions completely different. Their visions, their concepts, and their reasons behind stage in this place are very different. And so, so to put it succinctly, my goal is to help this particular play to, you know, sort of enliven and materialize the vision that a director has for this particular production. Yeah. I love that. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Khalid Long, who is an assistant professor of theater and the coordinator of theater studies at Columbia College, Chicago, and a freelance dramaturg. And before the break, you were kind of just giving us an outline of what you do as a dramaturg. Uh, and of course, noting that there are lots of different things that dramaturgs may do. Um, but one thing that I was wondering as I was listening to you, because you mentioned all of the research, right, that's involved um, in the process. And I'm wondering, you know, for you, you know, are there specific plays or even playwrights that you um, kind of seek out to work with? Um, or how do you make that decision? Because I imagine it is a lot, right? It is a lot of work. You've already told us that. So there has to be some sort of process in which you kind of decide, okay, what is it also in my vision for the type of work that I want to be involved with? Yeah. So I am somebody, so, I, you know, my academic training I consider myself a cultural historian. Um, and I'm somebody who specializes in the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, and in particular, I look at African-American or Black diaspora drama, theater, and performance, right? Those are some of my research areas. Um, I, I, I'm very much not you know, beholden to those areas only. So in other words, I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm pigeonholing myself into those particular research areas, but those areas which I specialize in. You know, more particularly around like my research and my critical, like, you know, my publications and my teaching and things of that nature. So oftentimes I am called in when those areas are at the center of a production, or at the very least, it is the framing for which a director is taking for their productions. Um, and because I can bring in that expertise and so forth, I'm often called in to work with theater companies that historically have been, you know, white led um they've had they have a history of producing you know predominantly white shows and working with white folk 
and they're like, well, you know, we're diversifying and so forth. And I applaud those efforts, of course. And they'll say, you know, we have a dramaturg in residence. We have someone here who's on staff, but what we're wanting, we want to bring in a guest dramaturg so that they can offer their expertise to this particular show. And, th and that has happened with a lot of different plays I've done. So some of the playwrights, I've, some of the, the shows I've done, it's like um, Lenotage's Intimate Apparel, Lenotage's Sweat. I've done, um, oh, I, I currently have a show coming up at Court Theater in Chicago. We start rehearsals next month. Uh, August Wilson's Two Trains Running. Um, Kill Move Paradise, which is a beautiful show by James Imes, which is really, um, uh, 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 it is a show that deals with sort of the current epidemic around police brutality and state-sanctioned violence and the killing of young people of color, um, in particular black and brown people, um, which is interesting because I actually just wrote an article about Black Lives Matter performance and I talk about James's show and that, that production that I worked on really sort of fed um, the article. Um, I'm trying to, it's interesting, that, you know, when you're trying to think, oh, <laughs> Kirsten Greenwich's play, Milk Like Sugar and Mosaic Theater, which is a beautiful show about young girls who make a pregnancy pact that was inspired by a story that actually did happen, Kirsten Greenwich's play. Um, so I'm often, so, you know, I'm often called in to work on shows that are dealing with very, very um, complex topics around identity markers and so forth. So yeah, and and for instance, you know, I'm, I was called in to do Glass Menagerie, as we know, historically it is a white play, but the director is doing some amazing things. You know, for instance, Amanda, the mother is a white woman. He's he's uh, cast her as a white woman, but she has two children of color. And so what we've been having conversations with this about this week is who was the father? which in the play, the picture of the father's hanging up in the home. One of the cast members posed this question before we actually went to rehearsal. And she says, how did my mom meet him? Like, this is the 1930s. We're in the depression era. How did this happen? And I was like thinking, thinking, thinking and writing and reading. And that, the first day of rehearsal, I did a presentation. And I said, here's what I think. The father was black, the children are of color, Mm -hmm. The mother is white, but the father may have been passing mm. for that time, yeah. which would then allow, have allowed him to marry her, the mother. Um, and then, as we know in the play, the father is no longer present. He's been absent for some time. We don't, and, and the question becomes, you know, was he discovered in the kind of, in terms of being, of, of passing or was there threats? and you know the sense of lynchings and so forth but right? all that helps to sort of develop the storyline in other words the unspoken material that Tennessee Williams does not provide and of course taking the artistic license to sort of not bend but to expand what Tennessee has given us because he has given us a lot of background around this play because it's based on his own life but yeah so those are some of the things that I do right because of my specialty um, my, my, my research um, and teaching focus, you know, that sort of comes in and supports my, uh, uh, the work, the plays that I've worked on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now you mentioned very briefly about one of the plays that you're working on, which does take up the topic of police brutality. Um, mm -hmm. and also mentioning that, um, 
that your work on that play helped inform um, something that you had written. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see um, art and activism, or in this case, specifically plays and taking up these very timely questions around um, activism, um, around, you know, even solidarity or other forms of resistance and rebellion. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I, you know, well, first and foremost, I think that art, I think the theater, I think performance, and in particular, Black theater performance has always been a source or a site or a resource that has responded to, you know, um, acts of violence, trauma, you know, injustices, right? I think historically, that is what part of what African-Americans have been doing with their works. Even, and, and, I, and I don't get into this debate often when people say, oh, I want a black play that is not informed or steeped in trauma. I don't even know what that means. Because even in your efforts to steer clear of trauma within the plays, in other words, a play about black joy, that is a trauma response. Mm -hmm. um, and by that, I mean, you may not have, you, the person calling for that may not have experienced trauma or some type of, you know, uh, um, injustice right um you know and i'm thinking about some of the injustices on like on a sort of a national scale um but even in the fact of you're calling for that you're recognizing that they do exist and so you're asking for something that sort of opposes that that in and of itself right is part of the larger conversation about why we write plays and do what we do um um, but yeah, I mean, but you know, but art has always responded to those things. I think more specifically, Black theater performance has always responded to those things. Um, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. um, you just have different styles and approaches and aesthetics and purposes and stories that people are writing about. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, it's always responded to it. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like my answer for that. You know? yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I remember I was having a conversation um, with another artist talking about um, this topic of arts and activism and how oftentimes we see people trying to separate the two, but in fact, they have already always been hand in hand. Right. Um, and so I love how, you know, you thinking through, you know, how do you contribute as a dramaturg, right, to telling these stories, but then also on the academic side, right? Some of the, the different articles or chapters that you've written, also thinking through some of these questions, both yeah. contemporarily, but also thinking about historically other playwrights or pieces that have been adapted <laughs> to the stage right. and how they're exploring these issues as well. Right, but I think, you know, I just wanna add to that, um, what we're, as I said, I wrote, I just wrote a chapter um, staging, it's called, the, the chapter's title at this point is entitled um, Staging Black Lives Matter. Um, and it is a chapter for the second edition of the Cambridge Companion to African-American theater um, edited by Harvey Young. And he sent me an invitation a while ago and said, hey, would you write this chapter? And I was like, very honored, very honored. Like, you know, like I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can do this, right? <laughs> um, to have my name in a book with many of the people that I admire and study and so forth. Um, and I recently sent him a draft. Um, I know he's gonna send me back, you know, like, hey, let's modify this, edit this, clarify this, but that's part of the editorial process. Okay. Mm -hmm. In that, in that um, essay, in that chapter, I kind of, again, I talked about the fact that Black theater has always been used as a, as a tool, as a resource to respond to social injustices and so forth and the crises in which we find ourselves. Um, and I talked about, and I talked a little bit about some of the artists I talked about, including James Hines' play, Kill Me Paradise. I also talked about Reginald Edmonds' um, 
Black Lives, Black Words um, project, which is now anthologized. Um, I talked about Idris Goodwin's Free Play series. Um, and I also talked about um, Keith Joseph Atkins, the, the, the um, Facing Our Truth, um, Trayvon Privilege, 10-minute uh, plays on race, Trayvon and Privilege. Um, right, all those plays that are sort of inspired by what we're finding, where we where we find ourselves. Excuse me. What again? And my point, and what I sort of was arguing in the chapter is that again, folks have always used theater and performance to respond to the current moment. Right? We could argue this with regards to early Black women playwrights, or as I like to call them, pioneering Black women playwrights of the early 1900s who wrote these anti-lynching dramas. Right. Um, very much a part of the anti-lynch campaign, the NAACP, and Du Bois's call for plays that are, you know, these propagandistic plays, right? We can think about the 1950s and 60s with Lorraine Hansberry, Alice Childress, right? Um, we could, you know, in the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s, Amir Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, Ed Bullens. Then we go into, you know, uh, feminist theater performance of the 70s and 80s. And this is, and, and I want to acknowledge that feminism, particularly Black feminism, is a long existing ideology, philosophy, and practice, but I'm particularly thinking about the Black feminist movement, right? That terminology, the, the naming of it in the mm -hmm. 70s, right? So you have Antizaki, Sean Gay, Glenda Dickerson, Alexis DeVoe, right? Um, Shea Youngblood to come out of that uh, genealogy. Um, um, you know, again, always using theater performance to respond. So fast forward, here we are, Black Lives Matter performance. For me, I'm arguing that there's a kind of cultural revolution right, that it's happening again and we're using theater and performance as sort of the sister to the movement on the streets. And then what's happening on the stage is responding to what's happening on the streets. Even more though, we've, we're seeing, and it, for me, this is, it, it really does sort of harken back to the Black arts movement and some of the efforts that they were doing in the 60s and 70s, right? Um, but expanding it, right, to be a bit more inclusive, Mm -hmm. right, so one of the things that I address is the fact that the plays within some of these anthologies and the plays that are being produced, and, you know, and that are being in the creative works that are being developed by these artists, right, are women-centered. They are centering queer people and queer identities, right? And so it's more inclusive. And at the same time, it is developing what I call this ethics of care. So for instance, um, I was at... In 2019, it was pre-pandemic. Yeah, 2019, I went, I was at Rep Stage, which is where I'm at now, and they did Kill Moon Paradise by James Imes. And one of the things that the artistic director did was to hire a, a trained specialist in trauma to be on the grounds with us, right? To be in the theater doing rehearsals, as well as doing every night when the show was performed in case someone was triggered, needed, needed, you know some form of care, right? Mm -hmm. But also ethics of care is, you know, for instance, with, um, I'm thinking about Idris Goodwin's free play series. The fact that he has written these plays in, 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 in partnered with TYA, Theater for Young Audiences of America, of USA specifically, it's in the title, um, and put these plays online so that any and everyone has access to the plays for free. Mm -hmm. No royalties, no, 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 um, uh, 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 no financial backings needed, but you can read the plays at home, teach them in your classrooms, have a conversations with your children about them, because these plays are also written for, again, young audiences from age six all the way up to college age students are at the center of these plays. And he says, I just, he says, you know, the, the 
the sort of payment, right, for lack of a better term that I get, is the fact that you are creating conversations about what we're going through in the world through using these plays as sort of a guide, a facilitation, um, or, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, to initiate the conversation. That right there for me is an example of what I'm considering to be this ethics of care, right? Um, so in other words, you're all, it is also anti-capitalist, right? So you're thinking about the very people who are vulnerable with regards to police brutality, state sanctioned violence, systemic racism, and more specifically, you know, anti-Black racism. Um, and most of those people are working class folks mm-hmm. who are in working class communities and to come up with some money to buy the royalties or the rights for a production or a play or to even purchase it off of Amazon um, or some type of you know uh, um, shipping company or whatever, that is not at the top of their mind. But to make this accessible is a true form of activism, mm-hmm. right? That one can do if you are really serious about you know, using theater and performance as a resource, as a site of activism, mm-hmm. yeah. I love that, you know, just as you outline these multiple um, aspects of activism, so not just the, the content or topic of the play itself, but also in this case, making this freely available. Yes. Um, I, I mean, that is absolutely amazing. Uh, and I like this idea that you mentioned of the ethics of care that's really embedded throughout some of these plays um, and even thinking about the production themselves. Um, and I think, you know, a conversation or a theme that's really come up across a lot of the folks that I've talked to is this idea of care and community and expanding what that means, Um, especially, you know, over the past couple years through the pandemic or through the multiple pandemics, right? And thinking about or rethinking what does community look like? What Mm -hmm. does care look like? And how we are um, very much interconnected um, to one another, whether we want to be or not, or whether we acknowledge it or not. And so just to hear you talk about um, within the art world, you know, thinking of some of the ways that folks are really creating this ethics of care. Um, I really love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and also I want to just respond a little bit to your point around community. That was something else that I um, talk about in this chapter where I talk about the fact that what we're seeing is a community affair sort of versioning, right? Um, And what I mean by that is that, like, for instance, you think about um, Reginald Edmonds' Black Lives, Black Words um, project, um, Black Lives, Black Words International Project specifically, where he acknowledges, like, you know, the Black Lives Movement, and so sort of modeling itself after the Black Lives Movement was initiated in America in response to some of the acts of violence and trauma and the killings or the murders that we have witnessed here, but, but, but there's also acknowledgement that it's happening all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, his partner, his now wife at, that t- at, at the time, his partner um, um, and now his wife, Somalia um, Hodge Dalloway, she said, you know, but I also was like struck by some of the stories where it was happening in the UK, right? And other places in the world. And so what they did with this project was to, you know, when they're going around and they're creating these festivals, um, and so forth with local artists to come in and to present their works. So some established artists and some of those that are, you know, sort of newly uh, minted or, you know, artists that are, you know, now just finding the ground to develop their works and so forth, you know, using that space to present works that are responding. I think and if, I'm, if I can remember correctly, the question is, do Black Lives Matter? 
right? And recognizing that this is a global concern. And then, you know, you have Keith Joseph Atkins with the, the um, Facing Our Truth Anthology, that project, which initiated as a project and then the plays are anthologized. The 10 minute plays, you know, he says that, you know, after Trayvon was killed and George Zimmerman was acquitted, you know, I was tired of carrying that burden alone as a black person, as a black man. He says, and so I wanted other folks to step in and take some of the, you know, weight and carry some of the burden and to also respond. So what he did was he put out a call to artists across all demographics, um, race and gender and so forth. And was like, I need you all to step in and respond as well. And so he created, again, a kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a multicultural community where playwrights wrote plays, white playwrights, you know, Middle Eastern playwrights, you know, Asian, um, Asian American playwrights, um, Black playwrights, women, queer people are, are writing plays that were responding to the moment. And, and yes, at the center was, you know, you know anti-Black racism and so forth. Um, and so I need you all to like step in and show your solidarity and support for black folks. And at the same time, recognizing how they're creating the methodology that can be used to approach people historically and in our current moment that are going through similar types of oppression, like while also recognizing the differences, but you know, but creating the framework, right? Yeah, so yeah. Yes, I love the idea of this shared framework mm -hmm. uh, because as you mentioned, um, you know, for marginalized groups experiencing, you know, different forms of oppression, but there is a shared framework, right, for how that happens, but also right. a shared framework for responding um, or right. just creating um, connections. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, it just, it made me also think about um, in the context of, I know all the different precautions that were put into place because of COVID-19 and how, you know, we saw many theaters, um, you know, being closed as, long, as well as other types of businesses, but the specific role that arts and the theater and that shared experience of yes. witnessing yes. also plays and how that took something from folks who were, you know, looking for community or even potentially looking for um, shared outlets to carry the weight or carry, yes. carry the burden, as you mentioned. Yes, 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 mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. I mean, you know, and again, this goes back to the question that you first posed, right? Um, theater, people have always been using theater as a way to respond to issues of injustice around the world. And I just think that we're starting to see sort of the ways in which it is expanding and how it becomes again, a community affair and more equitable in many ways as well, yeah. Yeah, that equity piece I think is so important. Um, and that's definitely, I think a conversation that is resurfacing right throughout society on how can we create equity, not just, you know, inclusion and not just the, the diversity right, piece, right, but actual right. equity. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so important. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa and we're joined by Dr. Khalid Long. He's an assistant professor of theater and the coordinator of theater studies at Columbia College Chicago and a freelance dramaturg. And we've been talking a lot this morning about what a dramaturg does, but also more broadly about the role of arts and activism and its importance um, for 
I would say for society, um, but also for, you know, for ourselves as well. And you, we kind of talked a little bit about some of the academic work that you've been, or academic writing, I should say more mm-hmm. specifically that you've been doing, but I also know that you have a book project in mm-hmm. the works. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to share more about this project. Um, so the project is focusing on Glenda Dickerson. And um, as you describe it, um, recovering her from the hidden cracks of theater history. Yes. (laughs) And so could you tell us a little bit about Glenda Dickerson and then also about the argument you're making in your project? Yes, thank you for that. You know, we, you know, we love to talk about our work, right? Because we rarely get asked that question. So thank you for that. Um, And so this is, this, this project, um, the title of my book is An Architect of Black Feminist Theater, Glenda Dickerson, Transnational Feminism, and the Kitchen Prayer Series. So this project is a continuation from my dissertation that I um, defended, completed, and defended in 2018 at University of Maryland College Park in the theater department. Um, well, the theater program. Um, and I'm looking at the life and legacy and works of Glenda Dickerson. I want to be very clear, this is not a biography, but it is recognizing how her life, particularly like, you know, in that sort of, in, you know, in the Black feminist framing of how her life intermingles the work, right? So it's important, but it's not a strict biography. But I do look at her life and work. And so Glenda Dickerson was an early pioneer of Black feminist theater and performance, really one of the voices to sort of concretize a Black feminist theater and performance um, as a theory and a praxis. Um, And she was the second Black woman to direct on Broadway with the 1980 production of Reggae and Musical Revelation. Um, She was a major, major director um, during her time. She was a student at Howard University in the 1960s, and she ended up going back to teach. She, um, her, she was trained under this illustrious, you know, sort of roster of professors. So Whitney LeBlanc, Eleanor Trailer, um, Owen Dotson, who she considers to be one of her mentors and so forth, right? And she went back to Howard and taught in the 60s and 70s. Um, and some of her students included Debbie Allen, Felicia Rashad, Linda Gravatt, like some major talents that we know and are familiar with today. Um, and she was really a pioneer in the Black theater movement, um, you know, which was framed by the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s. Um, so for instance, she was a pioneer with the Workshop for Careers in the Arts, which was a summer program for students in the DC area, predominantly Black students, predominantly, but, that does, but not only Black students, um, which then turned into a school um, and I'm actually blanking on the original name of the school, which then, which then was later renamed the Duke Ellington um, School for the Arts, which is a major institution in DC now, right? And it has a really beautiful relationship with Howard University. Um, you know, she went on to higher education into academia, and she was a professor at major institutions, um, including Spelman College, where she was the chair and also um, at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, where unfortunately she died while she was still um, a professor at University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Um, And, you know, she had this really horrible moment in commercial theater with the production of reggae. Just a a terrible moment. 
Um, and then she decided to turn her efforts to more academic and community inclined theater, but not only because of what happened in, in, in you know, at a time on Broadway, but also because she says, you know, my vision is, I'm able to sort of, you know, materialize my vision for what theater and performance can be without the constraints of realism, which is often the, the, the genre, the style, the aesthetic that is, um, you know, the go-to for mainstream theater and performance. She was very much, you know, an artist that employed, you know, the practice of devised theater. Um, she was an adapter. She did, you know, she developed these, you know, highly stylized works that always centered women. Um, and so my book, so part one is sort of tracing the genealogy of her life and legacy. And part two of the book, I look at her final project, which was the Kitchen Prayer series. Now, the Kitchen Prayer series is a trilogy of plays that was inspired by 9-11, right? Um, she was developing this work about women around the world when 9-11 happened. And she was sort of deeply impacted. Um, the day that it happened, her daughter, who was in New York, she couldn't get in contact with her at all. And that made her frantic, obviously. She did get in contact with her daughter later that day, who was okay. Part of what made her frantic is the fact that her daughter worked, if I can remember correctly, in, the, in one of the towers or mm -hmm. somewhere near the towers. But every morning she took the train that rode under the towers, mm -hmm. right? Um, but her daughter was okay and safe. But Glenda, like that, it, it stayed on her mind, right? Like, I can't be the only one that was frantic. And then when it came to like the media and the portrayal um, and the documentation of, you know, 9-11 and the subsequent war on terror, Glenda, Glenda was like, well, black women are not really at the center or the very least included in these larger discussions with the exception of a few politicians um, those who, for instance, were opposing the war and the ways in which they were vilified and so forth. So then to be able to create this, this, this so by part one of the, 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 the first place in the trilogy responds, you know, she goes around, she asks the cast members and even audience members, where were you when 9-11 happened, right? So sort of using performance as a way to document their stories. But as we move along in the next two plays, she posed this question about war. Like what is war? Like war, in her argument, and I sort of argue in my larger project, war is a white male patriarchal, you know, uh, uh, um, invention, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 she begins to theorize about this term war and says, you know, what is war? And so the other two plays deal with the notion of war and how war has affected women historically, globally across time and space. And she creates these sort of devised works that um, ask, you know, what is it like for women who experience a war as a quotidian, you know, experience, like as an everyday phenomenon. And that includes war in terms of two different territories fighting, war on women's bodies in the context of domestic abuse, um, sexual abuse and trauma and violence, right? And so, that's how she's dealing with it, right? So, um, and that's, my book takes up that. And the reason I'm using the notion of a transnational uh, feminism is to think about the ways, it, my argument, first and foremost, is that Black feminism always been a global project. And so therefore, the term that I use that for me um, sort of comes from Black feminism is the notion of transnational feminism. And I'm using, you know, scholars such as Chandra Mahanti, right, to theorize, you know, this notion of a transnational feminism. 
Um, but again, I'm recognizing that Black feminism has always been a global project. Um, and I'm using transnational feminism specifically to acknowledge that while these women across time and space, their experiences are very similar. Transnational feminism is very careful to acknowledge the differences of their lived experiences as well, right? So sort of, and, and, and to sort of put all that together and my final statement about this project would be, I argue that through, by creating a devised work, more specifically through the prism of documentary theater, mm-hmm. by using the real words of women who've experienced um, these horrific events and moments in their lives and throughout history by using their real words, what she's doing is creating, you know, she's that, that is her way of acknowledging the differences while also acknowledging the shared forms of oppression rather than creating a fictive script mm. that sort of supposes what people have gone through and particularly these women have gone through. Um, so yeah, that's that's the project, um, and it's 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 um, contracted with University of Iowa Press. I'm very excited about that under their theater and culture series, and um, the full manuscript is due in September. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Yes, I love it. Look, I wasn't even going to stress you out about like, when is this manuscript going to be right. out? Because <laughs> I is, understand. You know the process. It'll, it's due to the publisher in September to the, to the, to the, so they'll get it in September and I'm going to, I'm spending the next couple of months working on it and editing. Um, and then we just go from there. So, yeah. Yes, that is so exciting. Well, first, congratulations on the book contract. Um, and because for listeners, you know, the book process can be very long. <laughs> yes, yes. It's long, it's arduous, it's it's laborious, it's it's and it's rewarding. Yes. And it's rewarding. I want I want to acknowledge that it's otherwise that's why we do it, right? Like it is rewarding, that's why we do it. Um, and yeah, yeah. Yes, it is definitely rewarding. Let us foreground that. It is rewarding <laughs> as well as these other things. But I, I wanted to, to spend just one more moment on Glenda Dickerson because I, um, part of how you talk about this and even in kind of your relaying of kind of her personal biography, how she kind of slips out of, I guess, plays or, or the production part and goes into academia, mm-hmm. um, but also how... Um, it seems that she has not been fully acknowledged in theater history as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I gave a talk a few weeks ago and I won't name like schools and the people who were there. I won't, I won't do any of that, but I gave a talk out of, you know, it was not in Chicago, it was somewhere else. And one of the lines in my talk was, my goal is to rescue her from the hidden cracks of theater history. And I even said something like, you know, what got me interested in her stories because I actually wrote my master's thesis on Pearl Clay um, and looking at feminist theater and performance. And I discovered Glenda Dickerson there. And I was sort of like, why, asking, why is she not taught? Why do we not read her works and so forth? And when I gave this talk, there was someone who said, gosh, yeah, why is she not taught? I don't know who her, didn't know who she was. I didn't know her works. And right there, I was like, that's why we need this this book project. That's why we need to do more works on her. And I also want to acknowledge that there are many people who do know her. Mm-hmm. There are many people who have worked with her, right? But I'm talking specifically about in academia and theater, you know, and, you know, in the work where theater performance and culture studies are at the center, regardless of the kind of institution that it may be, whether it's a performing arts institution or a conventional academic institution, right? She needs to be taught. And not just because she's important, but for me, 
recognizing that teaching her story and her works opens the door for other forgotten, lost, and silenced, you know, works and voices, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so important because especially, you know, as researchers, right, we come across so many people or even concepts and theories that were like, these should be at the forefront um, mm -hmm. of our teaching, or if not at the forefront, at least present, right, yeah. because yeah. of how important they are, and yes. groundbreaking, and thinking through, you know, what might uh, a theater program or specific courses look like if we had a Glenda Dickerson and other yeah folks, I'm sure, you know, integrated fully throughout those teachings. Yes, yes, yes. So I love this project. Well, I know we're almost at the end of our time together this morning, uh, but tell folks how they could find you, how they can stay updated on, you know, so they'll know when the book yeah. comes out. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, of course, I'm on social media. I'm not on Twitter. I just, I've never gotten into Twitter. It's not my thing. Um, people always send me screenshots of like the, the conversations on Twitter. <laughs> send them to me, but I don't, I'm not on Twitter. But I am on Instagram. Um, my, my handle is, I think it's Khalid underscore Yaya, Y-A-Y-A underscore PhD. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, Khalid Yaya Long or Khalid Long. You can find me easily. And of course, Google me, you can find me that way. But uh, yeah, I'm out there in the world. I'm a public, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a public figure, but my, 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 wor my world is public, you know, um, <laughs> and so forth. So yeah, connect with me there and, you know, keep in touch. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, please stay connected. And just one final question. Um, if you had to recommend a, a play or even a couple of plays that you think folks just have to see um, before, you know, before they leave here, before they leave this earth, right. um, are there any plays or even playwrights that you might recommend? Oh, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, hands down, number one favorite playwright. All of her plays, in my opinion, are flawless. Of course, The Raising the Sun, but the one that I think, A Raising the Sun for me was, it's a pioneering work, but it's the one that led her to my favorite, one of my favorite plays, which is Les Blancs, but, you know, uh, and it deals with um, colonialism, the African diaspora, and so forth. Um, I, I would see Lorraine Hansberry, of course, August Wilson. I mean, I love August Wilson. I have projects I'm working on about August Wilson. And I'm trying to think, trying to think, oh, Dominique Moriso. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, they're great. Dominique Moriso, <laughs> Lenage, I mean, you know, all of those folks, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, the list is long, but those are the ones I would say start with. Start there, Alice Childress, Georgia Douglas Johnson. Um, yeah, I would say start there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate this. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you again to Dr. Khalid Long for joining us this morning. I told you, you are going to be mind blown <laughs> at what a dramaturg does. And so thank you so much for him to really sharing with us and giving us insights truly behind the scenes of what goes into the plays that we see. And again, so many great performing arts venues here in the city of Memphis. And also I guarantee in whatever city you are listening from. So I really wanna encourage you 
to get out and see some shows. And of course, you know, Dr. Long gave us some great recommendations for playwrights to be on the lookout for. So if any of their plays come in your area, definitely have to go check them out. So for today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this quote that says, theater is the art of looking at ourselves. I know Dr. Long talked a lot about the importance of art as it pertains to activism, but also community building. And I think one other important aspect of theater is, you know, it gives us the opportunity to look at ourselves, both as individuals, but ourselves thinking about our community and the societies that we live in. So why not grab a friend and go see a show and then let me know what you see. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. You know, I'm here every Monday ready to chat with you and bring you great conversations with a variety of different experts. Make sure that you subscribe to this show in podcast format. That way you can listen no matter where you are. Um, And you can listen to previous shows that you may have missed. I cannot wait to be back with you again next Monday morning.